Good evening, everyone. That sounded real weak. I'll tell you what. Now, if you were in Michigan right now, you'd want to move around a lot to stay warm. It's supposed to get down to 30 degrees there tonight. So I am very glad I'm here. <laughs> you don't know how glad I am I'm here. I, I do not like cold weather. I told the Lord when we lived in North Carolina, I said, I will never move further north than North Carolina. Never say never to God. Because He will show you He's in charge. I'm very glad I can be here. <clears throat> we are living in perilous times. Amen? And as I was praying about what to present <clears throat> while I'm here for these next couple of sessions, there are many things we could have talked about. <clears throat> many topics that would have been pertinent. Many topics that would be fun to study. Because the Bible is always fun. I, nothing I love more than studying the Bible, especially prophecy. Maybe we can come back another time and do a whole prophecy seminar. Just really get into it verse by verse to see. Because I'll tell you what, prophecy is under attack today in the church. And we're going to find out why tonight. But as I was praying, the Lord impressed me that as young people, you are going to be called upon to fulfill Isaiah chapter 58. And if you turn to Isaiah chapter 58, we want to start at verse 12. Because you are going to be called upon by God to fulfill this passage of Isaiah. And it says, And they that be of thee, the remnant, shall build the what? The old waste places. Thou shalt raise up the foundations of many generations. Thou shalt be called the repairer of the breach. The restorer of paths to dwell in. Now, what does that passage tell you tonight? Just in, in, a, in one short verse, the Lord encapsulates the work of His church at the end of time. What's He telling us? What, what, is this, what does this picture tell us? It doesn't say you shall be admiring, does it? You shall be happy, wondering. No, it says you will build up the old waste places. We're hearing all throughout some circles in the Adventist church today that in order to keep young people in the church, we've got to bring in new methods. Have you heard that? And yet the Lord here tells us that you will be called upon to build the what? The old waste places. That's Jeremiah 6.16. Return ye to the old paths, where is the good way, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Thou shalt raise up the foundations of what? Many generations. You shall be called the repairers. Now look at this. We've seen you're going to be builders, you're going to be raisers, you're going to be repairers, you're going to be restorers. Friends, those are all messages of something's been destroyed. Something's been tampered with. Something's been torn down. We're going to look at this weekend 
what we're being called upon to rebuild, what we're being called upon to restore. Where's the breach come that God is going to call you as young people? And I'm sorry for those of us that have gray hair tonight. I'm talking to the young people. The Lord gave us our crack at it, old folks. We messed up. Didn't we? Come on, let's be honest with ourselves. We messed up. Could the Lord have come in our generation? Those of us who are now 50 and over. Could He? Absolutely. But we messed up. So I'm talking to the young people. You can listen in because we're going to help them in some ways. And as we look at us as Seventh-day Adventists, what, what defines, what defines Seventh-day Adventists more than any other religion in the world today? What defines us? What makes us who we are? Sanctuary. But what else? What else? Come on. What, what, do, what do we have as Adventists that nobody else has? We got the Daniel 2 statue. Don't we? Does any church in the world understand prophecy like the Seventh day Adventist church? Come on, I'm seeing a few heads. What do the rest of you believe? Does any, do you all believe prophecy? Do you believe that we are the remnant church of prophecy? And as you look at the Seventh-day Adventist church, I mean, you, it used to be, not so much today, unfortunately, but it used to be, do you know there was a man in Cuba when Fidel Castro took over? And Fidel Castro was, was, was doing what any good dictator does. You get it, you do away with the physicians and the lawyers and the educated people, the pastors, so that you can control the people better. And there was one man that he was going to put away, and the guy said, please, Mr. Castro, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. Don't put me away. And Castro said, you're a Seventh-day Adventist? He said, yes. He said, draw me the 2,300 days in the same. Could you do it? The guy got down and he drew all the... Castro said, let him go. He's an Adventist. You see, we are known... It used to be if you asked somebody about the 2300 days, they could tell you about the 2300 days. They knew where the 1290 and the 1335 and the 1260, and they knew where all those dates fit in and why they're important and when the daily was taken away and when the 23, and when the 1260 days started and what the date was and why, <clears throat> why, um, um, all these great prophecies, you know, they, they, they could tell you about the hour, the day, the month, and the year of Revelation chapter 9. They could tell you why the Muslim power figures in so deeply into the end of time. We've lost it. But we are a people of prophecy. God, God set us up for prophecy. Look what God says about His remnant church in Revelation chapter 12. And verse 17, by the way, the name of the whole series this weekend is the main thing, is the main thing. And we're going to see what the main things are that God wants us to see. Tonight is the main why. Look at Revelation chapter 12 <clears throat> and verse 17. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the dragon, who's the dragon? The devil. Where do we find that in the Bible? Revelation 12. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed. Who's the remnant? Who's the remnant of her seed? Who's the remnant of her seed? It's us. 
Here he identifies who the remnant of the seed is. The remnant of her seed which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. What's the testimony of Jesus Christ? It's the spirit of prophecy, Revelation 17, verse 10. You see, all the way through Scripture, we're going to find that prophecy and worship go hand in hand. Can I say that again? Prophecy and worship go hand in hand. Look at Isaiah chapter 48. Excuse me. Isaiah chapter 48. In Isaiah chapter 48, Notice notice what he says here. Isaiah 48, verses 1 through 13. Hear this, O house of Jacob, which are called by the name of Israel, and are come forth out of the waters of Judah, which swear by the name of God and make mention of the God of Israel, but not in truth or in righteousness. Is it possible tonight, friends, to be Seventh-day Adventists and not be Christians? Is it? Yeah. For they call themselves of the holy city and stay themselves upon the God of Israel, the Lord of hosts is his name. Now listen to this. I have declared the former things from the beginning, and they went forth from my mouth. I showed them, I did them suddenly, and they came to pass. Drop down to verse 5. I have even from the beginning declared it to thee. Before it came to pass, I showed it to you, lest thou should say, Mine idol has done them, my graven image, and my molten image hath commanded them. Thou hast heard, thou hast heard, see all this, and will ye not declare it? I have shown thee new things from this time, even hidden things that thou didst not know. Now drop down to verse 9. For my name's sake will I defer my anger, and my praise will I refrain from thee that I cut thee not off. Behold, I have refined thee, but not with silver. I have chosen thee from the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, even for my own sake will I do it. For how should my name be polluted? Now, when when God starts talking like this, if you would look at um, Ezekiel 28, you'll see very clearly that when God talks about my name's sake, He's talking about the Sabbath. Here, in this passage, God, as He does so many times in the Scriptures, ties in His creative power with the fact that he's also the God of prophecy. He does the same thing over in Isaiah chapter 42. Look over there for just a minute. Isaiah chapter 42. We're going to look at verses 5 through 9. Thus saith God the Lord, He that created the heavens. Friends, you'll find many times in the Bible, any time God is talking to Israel, when they're forgetting who He is, He reminds them that He's the Creator. Now listen to this. Thus saith God the Lord, this is Isaiah 42, verse 5, He that created the heaven and stretched them out, He that spread forth the earth and that which which cometh out of it, He that giveth breath unto the people upon it and spirit to them that walk therein, I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness. I will hold thine hand. I will keep thee and give thee for a covenant to the people to open the blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from prison and then that sit in darkness out of the prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. Now look at this. Behold, the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare before they spring forth. I tell you. See, again, the Lord ties in His creative power with His prophetic gift. Now don't miss this. I'm not just saying this to entertain you right now. 
This is critical, we understand, as to what the main why is. Look at Isaiah chapter 45. Isaiah chapter 45, we could read the whole chapter, but we're not going to. In the very first part of Isaiah chapter 45, God is forecasting 200 years before His birth a man named Cyrus who would come on the earth. This very well could be the passage that Daniel himself showed to Cyrus to show him how he was going to get into Babylon. Thus saith the Lord who is anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden to subdue nations before him. I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates will not be shut. That was a prophecy 200 years before it happened, at least that Cyrus would go under the gate and that Belshazzar would excuse the phraseology, would mess his pants. His loins would be loosed. I will go before thee and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut and sunder the bars of iron. And I will give thee the treasures of darkness and the hidden riches of secret places that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, which call thee by name, am the God of Israel. You see, God in the Bible, when He's talking to His own people, establishes His authority by the fact that He can tell the future. Friends, are you worried about the future? God's already there. God lives in the future. Somebody give me an amen. You don't have to sit quiet tonight. I can take you talking. That's all right. God lives in the future. He's already there. Do you know? Do you know that before there was ever a Jew, God had already made the land bridge across the Red Sea for them to escape from the Egyptians. Before there was ever a Jew. Friends, brother, before you ever have a problem, God knows how to solve it. Because God saw it was coming. When Adam and Eve were created, He saw your problems. Can you trust a God like that? <laughs> Can you trust God tonight? Come on now, make me believe it. Can you trust God tonight? Yes. And if you can't trust God, it's because... You have been caught up in the vortex of doubt, just like the Jews. You see, because when we start forgetting the main why, why do we keep Sabbath? Why do we come here? Almost fell. Why do we come here to worship God? Many of us have sunk into a dry formalism where Sabbath is just the last day of the week. It's a day I don't have to study for my biology class or for my A&P exam or whatever it might be. It's just another day, like a vacation day. But we need to understand tonight, in the next few meetings we have together, this whole weekend is going to, is going to focus in on this whole issue of worship. Because Satan is attacking God's church in the area of worship. New worship styles, new worship methodologies, new worship books, new worship this, new worship that. But we need to see what God says about worship. And here, God says, I call Cyrus by name. But now look what he does. Look what he does in verse 11. Thus saith the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and His Maker, ask me of the things to come concerning my sons and concerning the works of my hands, command ye me. I have made the earth. I created man upon it. I, even my hands, have stretched out the heavens and all the host have I commanded. Here again, you see what God is doing? He ties His creative power to His ability to forecast the future. Prophecy and worship go hand in hand. 
in Daniel, we look in the book of Daniel, in the book of Revelation, friends, there are two themes that run through those two books. Two themes run through those two books more than anything else. One is worship, the other is prophecy. Worship is all through the book of Revelation. But it's also in the book of Daniel. We see, we see worship addressed in Daniel chapter 3. What happened in Daniel chapter 3? Just bow down. That's all you have to do. Are we going to be called to our own plane of Dura? Let me ask you a question. The Bible says in the, in the book of Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar called everybody to the plane of Dura. All the chief captains, all the sheriffs, all the bab, all the, all the provincial governors, Everybody who was anybody in Babylon was called to the plain of Dura. So where was Daniel? He was the big somebody. He was second in command. Where was Daniel? Where was he? Have you ever thought about that? I think I know where Daniel was. No, he was gone. Oh, yeah. Here's why. I think Nebuchadnezzar, being the smart ruler that he was, he thought, you know, this Daniel stands for principle. And if I get him out there on Dura, he's not going to bow down. And he's going to rain on my parade. He's going to make me look foolish. So I'm going to send him away on official business. I'm going to send him to a far province. That way... I can get those three boys to bow because Daniel's the ringleader. So Daniel's gone. Daniel's out of the scene. That's why Nebuchadnezzar was so furious when those three boys wouldn't bow. Because he thought they would. <laughs> we'll talk about that another time. But you see, worship and prophecy are closely tied. Now, I want you to look at the book of Revelation. Because in the book of Revelation, well, where else do we see worship in the book of Daniel? How about Daniel chapter 8? On the 2300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. But in, in Revelation, let me, let me give you the passages in Revelation where worship is directly mentioned. Because worship is all through the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 3 verse 9. Revelation chapter 4 verse 10. Revelation chapter 9, verse 20. Revelation chapter 11, verse 1. Revelation chapter 13, verse 12 and 15. Revelation chapter 14, verses 7, 11 and verses 7, 9 and 11. Revelation chapter 15, verse 4. Revelation chapter 19, verse 10. And Revelation chapter 22, verses 8 and 9. All those places, all through the book of Revelation, the, the word worship or worship or the content, the, the, the concept of worship is mentioned. Now, especially in the chapters of Revelation 13 and 14. Revelation 13 and 14 are the very last synopsis of human history before we get to the interlude chapter of Revelation chapter 15. And yet in those two chapters alone, one word or derivative of a word appears more than any other. What do you think it is? Worship. Worship. Friends, what's going to be the key issue at the end of time? Worship. Now, let's, 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 let's take this out of the, out of the, the trait, 
cliche answer that we are so used to giving in school. And let's put it down to a visceral level. Is it really worship that's the key issue? Or is worship a symbol of what's really going on in the world at the end of time? What do you think? What's really the issue of worship? The issue of worship is who has your loyalty? Who are you going to listen to? Who are you going to put your faith in? The issue at the end of time is who are we going to listen to? Who are we going to trust? Whose word are we going to sink our teeth into and not move? That's the real issue at the end of time. Worship is a symbol of a deeper issue. And as you see what's going on at the end of time, it's interesting as you look in the Bible, especially in Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5, the way Revelation works, Daniel is the, the grade school, if you could use it that, uh, prophecy. In other words, Daniel chapter 2 is one whole prophecy. Daniel chapter 7 is one whole prophecy. Daniel chapter 8 is one prophecy. Daniel chapter 11 is one prophecy. Daniel chapter 12 is one prophetic line. But when you get into the book of Revelation, it's different. In the book of Revelation, we don't have chapters as being the whole prophetic lines. We have multiple chapters being prophetic lines separated by interlude chapters. You have Revelation 2 and 3, the seven churches. Revelation 4 and 5 are interludes. Then you go to Revelation 6 and 7 as the seals. And then Revelation chapter, well, really the first part of Revelation chapter, really chapter 7 is a little bit of, a, of an interlude. And then we get into Revelation chapter 8, starting into the trumpets. And Revelation 9 into the trumpets. And Revelation chapter 10 and 11 are interludes before we get into Revelation chapter 12. So you have these interludes going through Revelation. And as you look at these in the book of Revelation, you have, we're going to talk about this more tomorrow, but we have a whole series of sevens. We have seven, what's the first seven in Revelation? Seven churches. Then we have what? What's the next group of seven? Seals. And we have seven trumpets. And we have seven plagues. Do you know that every time, without fail, every time you have a series of sevens, seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven plagues, every time, it's preceded by some type of worship in heaven. Something's going on in the heavenly sanctuary before something happens on earth. Something is being worshipped in heaven before something happens on earth. You see, worship is a key central attribute of God's government, of God's throne, because you worship who has your loyalty. Amen? I worship my wife. She has my loyalty. I mean, she can do no wrong in my book. You should see this girl. I met her at La Sierra. The first time I saw my wife, I said, her feet don't even touch the ground. Look at her. I mean, she was this Italian goddess. I'd never seen anything so beautiful in my life. I said, she is way out of my league, but nothing ventured, nothing gained, right? All she can say is no. And when I went back to the dorm, I was at, I was at a Towers. I was up on 7th on Heaven there in Towers. And I said, I saw this girl on campus. Her name is Vicky Bianco. And they went, I said, I'm going to ask her out. And they said, you're going to ask out Vicky you got some guts, man. I said, maybe I got guts, but I don't have much brains. He's probably going to say no. But you know what? It worked. And she hasn't seen it yet. <laughs> she doesn't know why yet. But I worship her. Why? Because I've, she's got my loyalty. She's got, there's no question in my mind that I'll be loyal to her to the day I die. Because I made that choice. And as you look in the book of Revelation, as you look at the book of Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5 and Revelation chapter 8, and you see, now listen to this, when you see worship in heaven, there's one defining characteristic of worship in heaven, and that is perfect unity. All true worship leads to unity of believers, not to division. 
What we see happening is a very subtle way to divide the church. We're even seeing it in our, our precious Adventist church, where you have some churches now that are doing a contemporary worship service, then they have a traditional worship service. That is a divisive worship, not an inclusive worship. That is not the type of worship that God calls for. And we're going to see why more as we go on tomorrow. There's a, true worship always brings unity. It may it may have some div, some 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 um, rough edges to get over, but ultimately, true worship will bring unity. This is what you see in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter one, when the or Acts chapter two, when you have Pentecost. The Bible says that they were all in one accord in one place worshiping God. True worship brings people that could never get along. Could the disciples ever get along? I mean, you know, Jesus, I feel the Lord, the Lord, did you know the Lord had, had a family? He had 12 little boys in big men's bodies. Now, I'd rather have 12 little boys in little boys' bodies than 12 little boys in big men's bodies. Because little boys in little boys' bodies are easier to control. These guys could never get along. They were always fighting, even up to the time that Jesus went to the cross. They're saying, I'm going to be first, John. No, you're not, Peter. I'm good. No, Peter, get off. You, you, you all. Can you imagine John looking at Peter saying, Peter, you could never be a ruler for Christ because you were ambidextrous. You can put, put either foot in your mouth. It doesn't matter. You don't think before you speak, Peter. So that means you're not going to be. You know, they're always fighting. And yet the Bible says that when the Holy Spirit fell, they were of one accord in one place. That's the result of true worship. Unity of believers, not division. Why is it in the church today that we're getting to have little people's little people's church and young people's church and this person's church? You know, before long we're going to have men's church and women's church. That's not what true worship is. True worship brings unity, not division. You see, the temple and worship in the temple is the key to prophecy. And Satan knows, listen now, Satan knows, based on what we've seen, that God ties his creative power to his predictive power. And if we start doubting prophecy, which we have as a people, we have all new types of fangled prophetic interpretations coming in, and Satan knew that we, when we began to doubt God's prophetic power, we would begin to doubt his creative power. And when you begin to doubt God's creative power, you begin to doubt the Sabbath. And when you begin to doubt the Sabbath, you begin to get careless with the Sabbath. And it's not not long when you get careless with the Sabbath that you get careless with the Scriptures. When you get careless with the Scriptures, you get careless with the spirit of prophecy. When you get careless with the spirit of prophecy, you are no longer an Adventist. It's a very well-defined chronology that Satan knows works every time. If you can get men to either doubt God's creative power or his prophetic power, his creative message or his prophetic message, you have the beginnings of the demise of a remnant people. Now, as we look at this, why do we worship? What is the purpose of worship? Friends, if we, if we don't know why we're worshiping, we will never worship right. If you don't know why you're going to a picnic, you won't be able to enjoy it. Right? You just sit around saying, why are we here? I don't know. It's a nice day. Well, I can be in the bowling alley on a nice day. 
I can go on a boat on a nice day. Why not come to a picnic on a nice day? Well, I don't know why we came. What's the worst part about not knowing where you're going? You don't know when you get there. Let's look at what God said. Worship. We all know this text. Exodus 25, verse 8. Jesus said, Let them make me a what? A sanctuary that I may what? Dwell. Friends, that's one of the most beautiful scriptures in the Bible. You see, when, when Adam and Eve sinned, you have a picture of God coming and saying, Adam, where are you? Where are you, Adam? And here in the sanctuary, you have God saying, here I am. Come get to know me. Have you ever thought about that before? The sanctuary was God reaching out to sinful man and saying, if you want to know who I am, come look at me in the sanctuary. Come live with me here. He said, let them make me a sanctuary that I may what? Dwell. Now, aren't you, um, I know you, don't I? Yeah, I knew you when you were just this high. Yeah, I know your mom and dad. I'm going to say, oh. If we moved in together to have an apartment, because we're trying to save money, Okay, we're dwelling together now. You know, we, you got your place and I, I got my little place and you got your little place and we're cooking together and, you know, we, we entertain ourselves and we do things together. What's going to happen? You're going to get to know me real well, aren't you? You're going to know secrets about me that I wouldn't want you to tell anybody. And I'm going to get to know secrets about you. You might be able to tell people the weird way you get dressed in the morning. Just the way this guy gets dressed. He puts, he puts both legs in his pants at the same time. Right? You get to know secrets about people. Friends, that's why God said, let them make me a sanctuary so I can get to, you can get to know, I'll, I'll tell you secrets about myself. It's, it's Amos 3 7, isn't it? I said, I'll do nothing but I'll reveal my secrets. Do you, want, do you like to know secrets? Oh yeah. You see, God says, when we begin to worship God, we begin to understand His secrets. We begin to understand His character. We begin to understand him like, like only a, a spouse can understand a husband or a wife. Did you think you knew him before you got married? You're really getting to know him now, aren't you? Yeah. Warts and all. But that's what marriage is for. To get to know somebody. And God says, if you want to really, if you really want to know who I am, come worship me. Remember that story in the Bible? Remember the story in the Bible when, when Jesus was there and, and his disciples came and said, Master, there's some Greeks here who want to see you. You remember that story? What, did, did, did Jesus ever tell him, bring him, come in, tell him to come in? What did Jesus say? Jesus immediately began talking about the cross. He said, if they want to see me, have them look at the cross. Have them see my character. Have them see what I'm, what I went about to do for them. You see, worship introduces us to God in a way that nothing else can do. You can read the Bible and get a pretty good picture of who God is. You can read the Spirit of Prophecy and get a clearer picture of who God is. But friends, we really don't get to know God unless we worship Him. And that's why, at the end of time, the key issue is who has your loyalty? Who are you worshiping? Who are you getting to know? Jesus said, 
Let them make me a sanctuary that I, that they may, that they may dwell with me. I want to live with them. I want to be among them. I want to show them who I am. And when we come to church on Sabbath, it's not to come to see my friends. It's good to see friends. But friends, the real reason why I come to church is to get to see God. I want to see Him more clearly. I want to, I want to see what His plan is for my life. I want to see what He has in store for me the coming week. You see, Sabbath is is the battery recharging time. It's a time where I, I just lay aside everything. We're, we're going to see this even more as we go on. You see, the whole the whole act of worship is to get to know God. It is it is God centered. Now, listen to what I'm saying. True worship is God centered. And if you look in the Scriptures, pagan worship is self-centered. Pagan worship appeals to carnal lust. Pagan worship appeals to the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and and the lust of life. But God-centered worship appeals to what? Getting to know God. It's God-centered. And look at our church today. How many times do people say, well, I sing this type of song because it makes me feel better. Have you heard that one? Listen, all true worship will ultimately make us feel better. Because you have fullness of joy in God. You have completeness in God. But but true worship, true worship, in order to get us to the point of feeling better, have you ever remodeled a kitchen? Y'all are probably too young to remodel kitchens. but When you remodel a kitchen, it gets pretty ugly before it starts getting better. And our lives are in such shambles. Our lives are so destroyed by sin that they're going to get pretty ugly before they start getting better. And the purpose of worship is to help me see not only who God is, but also who I am in relationship to Him. And what my need is in relationship to Him. And it's going to get ugly sometimes. And friends, there are times that God wants the pastor to step squarely on my toes. No amen. <laughs> I remember one time I preached a sermon and a lady came out and she was fuming mad. And she said, Pastor, you were looking at me through that whole sermon. You were talking right to me, weren't you? I said, Sister, I don't know. But if you think I was, praise God. He's speaking to your heart. Can the Holy Spirit bring conviction? I never saw the woman in my life. But that's the Holy Spirit. So, true worship, true worship is going to be God-centered. Look at Psalm 100. Look at Psalm 100 for just a minute. You see, the, the truth of the matter is, the Bible says... In Jeremiah chapter 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Now, have you ever stopped and thought about that passage? You know, brother, what if your wife, what if your wife was just really mad at you? She said, you're wicked. It really hurt your feelings, wouldn't it? But what if she said, you are desperately wicked? Man, that just crushes you. And yet God says, not only is my heart wicked, it's what? Desperately wicked. 
Now, if he'd stopped there, brother, I'd be discouraged. If he had said it's desperately wicked, who can know it? But then he says, I, the Lord, I try the reins of the heart. Praise God, we have a Savior who shows us our need. Praise God, we have a Savior that says, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Praise God, we have a Savior that says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my ways. And see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That should be our prayer every day. That's the effect of true worship. You see, in true worship, I come and see God high and lifted up like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. Do you realize that in Isaiah chapter 1 through 5, Isaiah was saying, look at those sinners. Look at those sinners. Look what they're doing. In Isaiah chapter 6, he sees God in the temple in an act of worship by the angels. And he says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. That's the effect of true worship. The effect of true worship lets me see a picture of God like I've never seen before. And it's not a warm, fuzzy, cuddly little little Mr. Mrs. Miss Piggy God. It's a God that says, I love you, but you got to change and I'll give you the power to do it. And then when God does that, it, it puts me into such a, a right relationship with God that I realize that I am such a sinner. I want to be in unity with my brethren because I need their help. Hey friends, what is church? What is church? Have you ever thought about that? What is church? Church is a community of recovering sinners. I like that definition. Church is a community of recovering sinners. And here, now, now, probably the good doctor here could, could describe this better than I, but my wife does a lot of research. She writes books. And science is discovering the phenomenal power of the human brain to change, to restructure itself, to make new pathways within itself. Do you know you can start building new neuronal neighborhoods in as little as three hours? Don't look so sad, brother. That's good news. That's good. Man, I, when I when I found that out, because I, I did a lot of drugs, did a lot of drinking, I was I was a total reprobate. And when I found that my brain wasn't forever damaged, I said, "Praise God! Praise God! I can begin to rebuild my brain." And friends, church is a community of people who want to rebuild their brains. Church is a community of people where I can I can look at somebody who's got a better attitude than me and say, I want to have an attitude like that. Would you mentor me? I want to overcome that sin in my life. Would you mentor me? It's a place where we can come together and learn how to be like God. But you see, the new worship styles, the new worship modality says, you come together to feel comfortable with one another. The true object of worship as the Bible portrays it, the true object of worship is to see such an exalted picture of God that I say, I want to be like that. And with the help of my brothers and sisters, I can get there. With the help of the Holy Spirit, I will get there. Church becomes a community of support where we add wind under each other's wings. Do you like that? Come on, somebody say amen or something. Am I here by myself tonight? I'm, wor- I'm sweating, ma'am. I'm working hard up here. Show me a little empathy, all right? Let's look at Psalm 100. It says, now here is a worship psalm. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Now, this is one area where we have a little work to do. 
Because in many Adventist churches, we are in the land of the frozen chosen. Have you been there? You go into Sabbath school and they're singing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings Praise Him all creatures Man, give me a break. Would you want to be a part of that family? Much of the problem we have, we have only ourselves to blame because we made our religion dry and formal and lifeless. Should, is it a sin to get excited in church? Hey, let me ask you a question. When Jesus was in the temple on that Sabbath and He had the man with the withered hand who had it hidden away and Jesus was there on Sabbath, what did He say? Stretch forth your hand. That man stretched out his hand and was made holy. You think people were going, praise the Lord. What a wonderful miracle. Did you see that, Molly? He just healed that guy's hand. Oh, how did he do that? What do you think happened? Do you think there was a little excitement in church that day? I think people were saying, hey, this is the place to be. I like coming here. Should we have the type of religious services that make you want to be there seven days later? that make you look forward to being there the next week? Should we not have church services where people come through the door bubbling with excitement for the victories that God has given them through the week, for the Bible studies they've had through the week, for the souls they've led to the Lord through the week, and they come so excited to share of what the power of God has done in their lives that they can't wait to break through those doors? Man, I like to go to a church like that. You see, we have a little learning to do of how what, what God meant church to be. Church is meant not only to be a session where we worship God, but to praise God. Oh, that's a new thought. Praise God on Sabbath? Yeah, it's part of worship. That's what God wants us to do. And that's what David says here. David says, make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with what? Gladness. You know why a lot of us have a hard time on Sabbath? Because our lives are miserable all during the week. I mean, where is the joy in religion? Our, our walk with God should be, should be so exciting and so cutting edge and so revolutionary. We should be gaining victories in our lives on a regular basis that religion becomes something you can't live without. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before His presence with singing. Know ye that the Lord, He is God. Now look what it says. It is He that made us. Creative power. You see, Sabbath. Listen to me now. Sabbath is a sign that God can take nothing and make something. And when we come to Jesus, we are nothing. We are cursed with sin. We are without form and void and darkness is upon the face of the deep. That's us when we come to Jesus. And only a God who can create, 
Only a God who can speak and it is done, who commands and it stands fast, only that type of God is worthy of our praise. Because that, when I come to church on Saturday, I stood out here tonight looking at those huge palm trees out there. And I'm thinking, man, God knows what He's doing. Look at that. Man, what did I say? Can man make a building that tall with that little teeny foundation and not blow over? God is smart. You know, you know what word is not in God's vocabulary? Oops. God, in his, in his billion Google years of existence, God has never said, oops. And God didn't say, oh man, I forgot to make white killer T cells. Now what are Adam, what are Adam and Eve going to do now that they've sinned? God saw it coming. God never says, oops. Enter into His gates with thanksgiving. Friends, that's our command from God. When we come through those doors, our hearts should be ready to overflow with thanksgiving to God. And into His courts with praise. Be thankful unto Him and bless His name for the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting and His truth endures to all generations. You see, that's what worship is all about. Worship is me telling God not only how much I need Him, but how thankful I am for all that He's done through the week. Oh, you guys, you just don't give me any amens. I can't believe this. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 2, I'm sorry. Now they told me I have to be done by midnight, so we're going to push real hard here. You know, it's funny. We, we go to a baseball game. We want it to go into extra innings. We go to a football game, double overtime, basketball game. Let's go into triple overtime. Come to church. Get me out of here on time. Something's wrong with this picture. Genesis chapter 2. Now look at this. God has created the earth. And verse 31 says, And God saw everything that He made was He had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Now, look at verse 1 of chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were, what's the next word? Finished. What does that mean? What does that mean? If something's finished, what does it mean? It's just done. When I was at their house tonight, we ate, I said, I am finished. She said, good, did you enjoy the meal? She knew I was done, right? I was finished. Here it says, the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. But look at verse 2. And on the seventh day, God ended His work. Now wait a minute. Verse 1 just said it was all done already. Now verse 2 said on the seventh day He ended it. What's going on here? Is this a contradiction going on here? I thought He said it was all done on the sixth day. And on the seventh day, God ended His work which He had made, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He has made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it He rested from all His work which God created and made. Why did God do that? Have you ever thought about that passage? Yes, no, maybe? <laughs> Has anybody ever thought about that passage? What's it mean? If everything was done on the sixth day, why did he finish it on the seventh day? What was the purpose of the seventh day? What was God making on the seventh day? Pardon me? 
Okay, now, this, this just came to me just the other day. I've always looked at this passage as God just kind of sitting down and just He's there all by Himself, just resting. Is that what happened? Who's with Him? And who else? Eve. That was a new thought to me. I thought, hey, wait a minute. Adam and Eve were with God. What was the first whole day that Adam and Eve spent together? Sabbath. Isn't that great? Who did they spend it with? God. Okay, now let's think about this. It says that God finished His work on the sixth day, but then He ended His work on the seventh day. And that He sanctified the seventh day. And yet Jesus says in Mark chapter 4, Sabbath was made for man and not Man for the Sabbath. Now, let's start thinking about these two. Friends, I challenge you not to be light readers of the Scriptures. To think about what you're reading and to meditate on what you're reading and say, Lord, what are you trying to tell me here? What's God trying to tell us? Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. What does it mean when God said He sanctified it and hallowed it and blessed it? What's God trying to tell us? What is God trying to tell us? He rested on the seventh day. What you telling us? Come on, you're all students here. What you telling us? Yeah, yeah. He made an appointment. He's spending the day with Adam and Eve. Okay, what else is he, is he telling us? So, what did God do the other six days? He's actively involved in physical labor. He's actively involved in planning something. He, he's thinking each step through how to do it. Couldn't God, wouldn't, wouldn't it have been more impressive? Wouldn't it have been more of a ooh moment to have God say, let there be an earth with a sea and trees and flowers and animals and birds and man and woman and stars and sun and moon, poof, and it's there. Everybody goes, whoa, you are powerful. Wouldn't that have been more impressive? Wouldn't it? He's shaking. He sure it would. To me. Why did God take one thing at a time? You can create an order all at once. Yeah, it's a God of order, but come on, folks, think about these things. What's God telling us? God created one day at a time, one step at a time, in order to make the Sabbath for man, to show man that this is a special day that God made to be with man. Shall I run through it again? That means that God says, you need to disrupt your schedule and plan your... God, on day one, God was planning for day seven. He planned to be there. He was thinking about it for seven days. Friends, is Sabbath just a seventh day occurrence or is it a daily plan in your life where you are planning to be with God on that day? That you are planning to spend the whole day with God doing something totally different from what you do the other six days of the week. You see, God, the seventh day was totally different. God did something totally different. God was teaching, Adam, listen now, God was teaching Adam and Eve how to be like God. 
Think about that. The God of the universe coming down to his created beings, showing, here's how I want you to act. Here's what I, friends, that's called sanctification. That's why God said in Exodus 31.13 that the seventh day is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever that I am the Lord that sanctifies them. You see, the minute we start getting careless with Sabbath observance, we start forgetting how to be like God. The minute we stop living for Sabbath, the other six days of the week, we stop learning how to be like God. And friends, let's, let's be honest with ourselves. Can you go in, I guess most of you here, I guess this is just a little stereotype we have a little into, but most of you here are probably in the medical profession. Dental, medical, maybe not. Some of you aren't, okay. Well, all of us have been to college, right? Can you, can you go in, let's say you're having a, a math test. Can you go in for your math test and expect to get a good grade if you haven't studied to get there. It doesn't unless you're a genius. I'm not. I studied, still didn't get a good grade, but this is life sometimes. Okay, same thing. Can we expect to get a Sabbath blessing if we haven't been expecting it throughout the week? Can we eat like the world six days out of the week and expect to act like God on Sabbath? Can we dress like the world six days out of the week and expect to look like God on Sabbath? Can we watch Desperate Housewives the other days of the week and expect to be a sanctified saint on Sabbath? What we do on Monday affects what we do on Sabbath. What we do on Tuesday affects what we do on Friday night. You know, many people, they, they rush through the Sabbath, they rush through Friday, they just zig through it, they're, they're, you know, looking at the clock, running, getting their shopping done, going through the store, and right before something happens, they go, Phoomp. and then they say, oh, God is so smart. He puts Sabbath after the busiest day of the week. Why have we made Friday like that? Because we're not planning the other six days. Everything we do as Seventh-day Adventists should be focused on my time with God. Coming before His presence with singing and into His courts with praise, anticipating the blessing that God's going to give me on the day that He set aside, that He made for man to teach man how to be like God. The sign that God says, I am the Lord that sanctifies you. Which is exactly why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.6, For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's Paul saying, if God can make a tree, He can remake me. That's what Sabbath is about. That's the main why. Why do I worship on Sabbath? Because it's the sign that God can take nothing and make something. It's not a 24-hour period. It's a, it's a rejoicing time where I come before God and say, God, show me what you want me to do. Show me how you want me to live. Show me what you want me to be. Show me who you are. You see... On the Sabbath, God created holy time. And friends, you can't keep a day holy that God didn't make holy. That's why you can't keep Sunday holy. 
What does the fourth commandment say? It says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now listen, we've looked at that wrong. We've looked at that wrong for all our lives. At least I did. Not only must we make sure that we do the holy things on the Sabbath, but that God says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Don't let it stop being holy. Don't let it get to be a common day where you go out water skiing and riding horses and doing things you do all throughout the week. Keep it holy. You see, I can't be light and, and trite on my decisions on Sabbath. I've got to go to God and say, God, this day is not to make, to do what I want to do. This is the day where I learn to do what you want me to do. Now listen. God is so good that he realizes that when we take a 24-hour period and have that mental discipline, by the way, Sabbath helps prevent senility. Did you know that? It does. Because it forces us, it forces us to put our brain in a new way of thinking. And that shows when you, when you practice new thoughts, when you practice new things, when you plan ahead, when you use executive function in your brain, you are preventing senility. I like that. Yeah. When Moses climbed Mount Nebo, was he senile? No. You see, God, God wants us to understand that when we practice being holy, when we, when we practice doing what God, by the way, friends, this is called experience-based plasticity. Have you heard of that term? Experience-based plasticity. Learning to teach the brain new things changes the brain's structure, changes the brain's genetics, changes the brain's coding. The Sabbath is a safeguard to brain power. Amen. I like that one. When we train our minds on that one day to think about God, to, to keep the Sabbath holy, to, to, to deny ourselves as we get into the habit of letting God call the shots in our lives. You know what happens? We come to enjoy it so much we want to do it on Sunday and Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. And... That's what Sabbath is for. To teach us how to live for God all the other days of the week. Because when I sit down to view a television program, I've got to say, is this going to help me keep Sabbath? No, it's not. I'm not going to do that. This is going to keep my mind pure so I can really worship God in purity. We're going to see that tomorrow. No, I'm not. You see, so, so Sabbath becomes a, a gauge of behavior all through the week. Because friends, I don't want to miss the blessing. When I come through those doors tomorrow morning, I want to know that God is going to be right up here saying, welcome, Dane. I've got a surprise in store for you today. How about it? Can you, can you, do you want to go to a church like that? I, I, hello? Yeah. Okay, let's wrap this up. God said, remember. God said, remember. Let's look at the seven things real briefly of what the Sabbath reminds us of. God said, remember. God said, remember. Number one, it reminds us of God's ownership. Mark 2, verse 27. I'm going to turn to these. You write them down because I'm going to turn to them pretty quick. Mark chapter 2 and verse 27. Notice what Jesus says here. Mark 2, 27, Jesus says, And He said to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. And you know, look at Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says that God made the things of the earth 
to be there as a visible reminder, a visible portrayer to everybody that there is a God. How can you look at the complexity of the human body and say, came out of smart slime? That would be as... Now, I'm a pilot. I love to fly airplanes. If I came in here tonight to, to this group of highly intelligent people and said, I flew in here today on a 747. And I want to tell you something about it. Last night, it was a pile of junk sitting in a hangar. There's a big explosion. 747 came out and flew here today on it. Would you believe me? He'd say, you are a wacko. Right? And rightfully so. And yet, a 747 can't have babies. A 747 can't heal itself. A 747 can't even eat. It can't even do anything. It just sits there like a dumb piece of machinery, yet it can't invent itself. How can I invent myself? The Bible says that God put the marvels of nature there as a visible sign that there is a God who loves us and cares for us and wants us to live for Him. And that's why scientists hate nature many times because it proves there is a God and they don't want to believe there's a God because if there's a God, they can't be in control of their lives anymore. So the Sabbath reminds us, it reminds us that God is the owner of this world. You can also look in Isaiah 41, 19 to 24. You can write these down. Isaiah 41, 19 to 24 and Isaiah chapter 40, verse 26. Number two, the Sabbath. When God said, remember the Sabbath day, He said that because the Sabbath reminds us of God's authority. If you look at Revelation chapter 10, one of my favorite chapters in all of Revelation, Revelation chapter 10, verse 6, it says this angel that was standing upon the scene upon the earth lifted up his hand to heaven and swear by him that lives forever and ever who created heaven and the things that are therein and the earth and the things that are therein and the sea and the things which are therein that there should be time no longer. That's God saying, I am in charge. What I say goes. That's God tying again creative power to prophetic power. God says the fact that I can create is the proof that I know the future. It's powerful. It's a sign of God's authority. Look what it says in Mark chapter 4 and verse 41. Mark chapter 4 and verse 41. Jesus here is speaking. Uh, the disciples are speaking after Jesus calms the sea. And it says, They feared exceedingly and said to one another, What manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey Him? The authority of God is manifest in His ability to create. And friends, the minute that we start doubting God's creative ability, we start doubting His authority. That's why evolution is a deadly trap. Because God is no longer the authority. It sets man up as a portrayer of what happened in, in history. You can look at Acts chapter 4, verses 24 and 31. When the disciples knew that they were going to get thrown in jail, they say, they go to God and they say, God, oh God that created the heaven and the earth. Notice they don't say God that raised Jesus from the dead on the first day. That's the strongest text in all the Bible that the resurrection of Jesus is not a new Sabbath because the disciples didn't make any mention of the resurrection as far as God's new authority. They still refer to His creative ability as reference on the, on the, on the seventh day of creation. That's his, that's the sign of, they said, God, give us power. You're the creator. You can give us power. You have the authority. And the Bible says that the whole place was filled with a rushing wind and God answered because he is the authority. 
You can also look up Isaiah 43.15 and Isaiah 40.28. Now, number three, the Sabbath reminds us of God's faithfulness. Look at this. I love this passage. This is probably what the three Hebrew boys were quoting in their minds before they went into that fiery furnace. Isaiah 43, verses 1 and 2. But now thus saith the Lord that created thee. Creative power. But now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee, and through the rivers they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall a flame kindle upon thee. Friends, the next time you are facing a challenge, the next time you are tempted to doubt God's ability, the next time you are tempted to wonder if God's going to come through, just think back to when the sun rose that morning and say, no, God is faithful. Just remember back when you saw that bird flying through the sky, God is faithful. You see, creation screams out, you can trust God. Remember, God never says oops. I love it. I was in a prison a long time ago doing a prison ministry video, and there was a, a group of ladies singing a song. I love this song. I wish I could sing it for you. It says, God, it says, God is an on-time God. It says, He may not come when you call Him, but He'll be there right on time. He's an on-time God. Yes, He is. God is faithful. And, and creation proves that God is faithful. Prophecy proves that God is faithful. That's why God said, remember, it reminds us of God's ownership. It reminds us of God's authority. It reminds us of God's faithfulness. Look at Luke chapter 16 and verse 47. I got a little problem here. There is no Luke 16:47. Well, whatever it was, it was a good passage, I'll tell you that. You can look at Job 38, verses 3 to 41. I love that. That's where God is coming to Job and he's saying, Job, where were you when I created the earth? Where were you when I formed Leviathan? And friends, if you ever wonder about God's faithfulness, if you ever wonder if God can really do what he says he'll do, I challenge you to do this. Go down to Malibu, or Newport, or Redondo, or, Le or any of those beaches, and watch how the waves come up to a certain spot, and then go back. They come to a certain spot, and then go back. They never go further than God says they can go. It's a mystery to me how they can have rainstorms out on the ocean, and the rain still comes up to a certain spot, and goes back. You fill the bathtub, it overflows. You fill the ocean, it comes to a certain spot, it goes back. Certain spot, it goes back. Why? Because God is faithful. And God said, you will come right here and no further. When Job came to God and said, well, sure, God, Job serves you. You put a hedge around him. I can't get to him. God said, okay, you can do this, but don't touch him. God is faithful. And even Satan knows when God puts a limit, you don't cross it. Even Satan knows that. Almost done. Number four, it reminds us of God's recreative power. We already said 2 Corinthians 4, 6-8, through 8, For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to bring the light of the knowledge of God and the glory of Jesus Christ. Friends, what takes a greater miracle? 
To create the earth or to recreate a life? Think about it. It's a huge miracle to recreate a life. It says the same thing in Colossians 3, verse 10. I'm just going to read one of these to you. Ephesians chapter 4. Listen to what it says here. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind. That is experience-based plasticity right in the Bible. The Bible is the most up-to-date scientific textbook ever written. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind that she put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. That's a powerful passage. If you doubt that God can make you new, if you look at your life and say, God, look at me, I'm a mess. I've totally destroyed my life. Go back and read Genesis chapter 1. The very fact that this earth is as beautiful as it is even with the curse of sin shows God's power. It's recreative power. That's why David said in Psalm 51.10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He's calling to the God of creation, saying, God, you can do this. Friends, do you really believe tonight that God can take you nothing and make you something? That's what the Sabbath says. Number five, it reminds us of God's unchangeable character. Now don't miss this one. Listen, friends, we, we're going to cover this on Saturday, on Sabbath. We hear voices in the church today saying that we've got to change the church to meet the culture. No! That's unbiblical. The church changes the culture. The culture never changes the church. It's never been that. You don't see the apostles one time saying, we've got to change the way we're preaching the gospel to make the Gentiles feel comfortable. You do hear the apostles telling the Gentiles to change, to conform to the image of God, but never vice versa. You see... The Bible, the, the, the Sabbath day reminds us that God is unchangeable. What does it say in the book of Luke? In the book of Luke, I can't remember the passage, but Jesus says, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass than for one jot or one tittle of the law to be done away. Do you know what God is saying there, friends? Jesus is saying it would be easier for the sun not to come up than for the fourth commandment to be nullified. It would be easier... It would be easier for the moon to fall out of the sky than for me to say thou shalt not kill is done away with. It would be easier for the ocean to dry up than to say you can now swear and take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. God is saying, I do not change. And that's what the Sabbath says. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 19. That's what Jesus said. It's easier for heaven and earth to pass. Look at Psalm chapter 111. Psalms chapter 111. <laughs> i got to tell you something in just a second. Psalm chapter 111, verse 4. Notice what it says. He hath made His wonderful works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. Look at verse 7 and 8. 
The works of His hand are verity and judgment. All His commandments are sure. They stand fast forever and ever and are done in uprightness and truth. You know what He does there? He ties His creative power to the Ten Commandments right there in that passage. And Jesus is saying, if you think that My law can be done away, start thinking about the sun not coming up tomorrow morning. Now, if the sun didn't come up tomorrow morning, what would you say? Houston, we have a problem. God is unchangeable. And friends, God, listen to me now. This is good news. Because if God is unchangeable, He is just as ready to save you as He was to save Moses. Give me an amen. This is good news. <laughs> hey, look. It's 11.30 to me. It's only 8.30 to you. You should be happier than this. God never changes. Salvation is always the same. Friends, you don't have to worry today what the standard of salvation is. It's the same today that it was in Eden. God is fair. God is fair. That's what the Sabbath says. Okay, two more. You know, I was preaching once. I got done and I said to my wife, I said, hey, honey, how would you like the sermon? She said, well, it was a good sermon, but you missed several opportunities to sit down. Anyway, number six. It reminds us of the purpose of worship. Did you get that? The Sabbath reminds us of the purpose of worship. Psalm 95, verse 6. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. Can I tell you a little story? Do you mind saying just a few more minutes? I mean, where are we going to go? You know, it's sad. <laughs> My wife and I were in Washington, D.C. last week. And anytime we go, I grew up in Washington, D.C. I love the place. It's got so much there. And we went to the Smithsonian because I love the Smithsonian. And we, we hadn't been into the National Gallery of Art in quite a while. So we went to the National Gallery of Art. And there was a lady there. In the Rembrandt, they have the, they have it all, they have the Dolly sections over here, and then they have the Picassos and the Rembrandts and the Cezans and you know, all these, all, all these great works all around in this huge building. And we were in the Rembrandt area. Have you ever seen Rembrandt's paintings? They're amazing. Very subtle plays of light. And there's this lady there painting one of the Rembrandt masterpieces, and I couldn't tell the difference. I went to her and I said, Lady, I said, man, you are good. I said, I'm going to take your picture and hang it up there and take that one. She said, oh, if you did that, I get struck by lightning. That was made by a master. And she just stood there looking at the pictures as if she couldn't believe what she was looking at. And I looked at her and I said, that's the way we should feel about God. We were made by a master. He deserves our worship. God forbid that my Rationale for church is what's going to make me feel good. That's pagan-centered worship. God-centered worship is what can I do to please God? What does God have for me? You see, the problem with us is we know what we want, but God knows what we need. It's a huge difference. And the Sabbath reminds us 
The Sabbath reminds us of the purpose of worship. Psalm 96, verse 9. Oh, worship, now listen to this. Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Every piece of worship we bring into, into our worship, every piece of music we bring into our worship service should be holy. What we wear to worship should be holy. What we say in worship should be holy. How we think in worship should be holy. That's the only way to worship God. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before Him. Oh, there. That word fear doesn't mean... <laughs> the word fear is, Lord, you're so good. Just like that Rembrandt masterpiece that was made by a master. See, First Chronicles sixteen twenty nine says the same thing. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And Malachi one. I wish we had time to go over Malachi one six eight, but we don't. But Malachi chapter one, God says, "If I'm your father, where's my honor? Try bringing these sacrifices to an earthly king. See if they would accept. Friends, we bring we bring clothing into our worship service we would never wear before the President of the United States. You know what I'm saying? We need to realize that when we come through those doors, we are coming to worship the God of the universe. The God who died to save us. How dare we be careless in how we come before Him? We give more honor to earthly potentates sometimes than we do to the God of the universe. You know why? Because we've forgotten how to worship. We've forgotten what the Sabbath is all about. We've forgotten point number seven is the Sabbath reminds us that Jesus is coming soon. What's that first angel's message say? Fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of His judgment has come and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the fountains of waters. Friends, again, worship and prophecy are tied together all through the Scriptures. And Satan knew that if you want to get people to forget their roots, get them to forget prophecy or forget how to worship God, you got them in the can. We have become very comfortable as Seventh-day Adventists. We have two-car garages. We go on vacation, and none of these things are wrong. I'm not saying we shouldn't be, we shouldn't have money. God wants us to have the things that He has us to have. But you know what it says? God gives us prosperity to test us to see if we'll use it to bless others. How about it? You learn anything tonight? The main why? Why? Why are we here tonight? Why are we here tonight? We are here. Because we want God to change us. We are here because we want to say, God, you're in charge of my life. You call the shots in my life. I am here to re-acknowledge one time a week. I'm here to re-acknowledge that you are in charge. How about it, friends? Listen to this. It's a little quotation from, from um, Book Education. The value of the Sabbath as a means of education is beyond estimate. Whatever of ours God claims from us, He returns again, enriched, transfigured with His own glory. 
The tithe that he claimed from Israel was devoted to preserving among men and its glorious beauty, the pattern of his temple in the heavens, the token of his presence on earth. So the portion of our time which he claims is given again to us, bearing his name in seal. The Sabbath is a sign of creative and redeeming power. It points to God as the source of life and knowledge. It recalls man's primeval glory and witnesses to God's purpose to recreate us in his own image. Can you die for a day like this? That's education, page 250. We're going to talk about the Sabbath all week. And I hope it's going to be exciting. I, I'll tell you what, I have never had so much fun putting together a series as I have this one. It's, it has renewed my zeal to be a Seventh-day Adventist. It's renewed my desire to have God take Dane Griffin, nothing, and make him something. Is there someone here tonight who hears God's voice talking to him, saying, you know what? You need to have a new Sabbath experience. You need to understand that Sabbath is not a day. It's a way. It's an experience. There's just someone here tonight who wants to say, Lord, I need to change. I need to move out of the land of the frozen chosen and into the promised land of true Sabbath observance, the Sabbath rest that Paul talks about in Hebrews chapter 4. If there's just one person here tonight who wants to say, Lord, I want to make a new commitment to you to, to really honor the Sabbath, not as a legal affair, but as a spiritual worship to a God who has done everything for me. If there's just one here tonight who wants to make a new commitment to God, don't stand up unless you mean it, Francis. God doesn't want us to play church. We're too close to set coming to keep playing church. It's time to get serious with God. But if you want to make a commitment to God tonight, I just challenge you to stand. I'm standing up because I need it. There's someone who wants to join me and say, Lord, I'm going to do it by your grace and by your power. I'm going to make Sabbath a, a true worship experience with you as the center. Praise the Lord. Father in heaven, we thank You for this time we could spend together tonight. Thank You, Lord, for showing us the main thing is the main thing. The Sabbath is going to be the issue at the end of time. Who has our devotion? Who has our loyalty? Who are we living for? All seven days of the week, not just one day of the week. Please, Jesus, help us to, to, to solidify in our minds that how we live on Monday will determine how we live on Sabbath. How we worship you the other days of the week affects how we worship you on Sabbath. Lord, as we study these great truths, give us wisdom, give us knowledge, give us your Holy Spirit. We pray that Sabbath will never be the same again, that it will truly be a, a worshipful, exciting experience, a journey each week that that draws us closer to you, closer to each other, brings us into unity of worship that only your Holy Spirit can bring. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.